You can find your way back to Proverbs, if you would please, to Proverbs chapter 6. And uh, <laughs> we, uh, we were talking about uh, surety, strugg- uh, sluggards, and scoundrels last time in our section, uh, if you missed that. Uh, we talked about uh, the need for young people last time to... Um, you think about the... the if, if you just... Uh, let, let's do let's do the uh, the threat intelligence exercise when we think about our teenagers, our young people, our college students uh, going off to the military, going off to college, going off to trade school, going off to the workplace. And what, what are the threat detections? And, and 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 Proverbs is so good at alerting us to the enemies that our young people are going to find. And and part of our job as parents, both in the home and even by extension when they leave our home and they're still sort of uh, dependent on us, is to help identify those threats and shepherd uh, our children accordingly. And so we've seen some of those threats already. We've talked about the threat of friends, right? The bad company. We've talked about the threat of uh, sexual sins, particularly uh, in chapter 5. Uh, we've talked about issues with authority. We've talked about ju- just sort of the garden variety, I want to be on my own, I don't want to be under my parents' authority, that sort of dynamic and the need for uh, parents to be patient and gracious to continue to shepherd their children even when they're not 100% receptive to that instruction, right? Well, well, here in chapter 6, we get introduced to several more of these enemies. We saw in the first uh, five verses the enemy of financial trouble. And uh, you talk about this, you know, I don't, I don't know if they still do this, and maybe some of you parents that have been to college campuses, you know, you're kind of shopping around for uh, college recently. I, I remember the last time I was on a college campus, and even remember when I was a college student, that, uh, you know, you go there and there's the new, stu- new student orientation, and they've got all these financial institutions there. And what do they want to do? They want to give these college students their first credit card. Well, why do they want to do that? Because they, because credit card companies know two very important things. Number one, young people are very, very irresponsible with their money. So they are likely to rack up all sorts of charges that they have no money to pay for. And number two, young people don't have any credit yet, which means mom and dad are going to back them to pay all that when little Johnny can't, uh, can't do that. So, uh, it's, it's, and I'm not trying to, well, it is a conspiracy. Yes, it is. But anyway, um, so, so they know that that, that, is, that is a place where whether it's a credit card, whether it's college debt, whether it's making um, poor choices about um, you know a car that you buy or financing some sort of pleasure item that you really can't afford, um, that, that finances are one of those enemies that literally before a, col- a college student graduates, they are already strapped in to a financial burden that's going to take them years, uh, sometimes decades, to actually pay back. And so Proverbs very wisely has alerted us to that. We talked about that in the first five verses with surety or, or putting up uh, uh, some sort of security for a loan. We also saw the, the enemy of laziness in verses 6 down to verse 11. We looked at that last time, how a young person needs to grow to learn to self-govern themselves. Um, that laziness to just do whatever you feel like doing and to not plan ahead, to not be insightful, to not think about what ought I to do, not just what I feel like doing in the moment and growing in that. And, of course, we learn the lesson there from the ants that have no ruler and yet manage, orchestrate, plan, and prepare uh, for their season. So that's a good 
uh, illustration there. And that leads us, uh, so surety, sluggards, and that leads us to scoundrels, which we see in verse 12, and uh, we'll pick up the text here. And actually, the, our discussion of scoundrels is going to introduce us to seven practices hated by God. Um, this little section of Proverbs where, where uh, Solomon, it's, it's odd. It's like he, he's in the middle of talking about this, and he says, Son, now, now we need, speaking of scoundrels, is what he says, we need to talk about seven things that are particularly abominable to God himself. And, and the discussion about scoundrel kind of leads him into that. So you'll see how one naturally leads to another. So most of our time we'll spend talking about those seven practices. Uh, but by way of introduction, we're going to be introduced to the scoundrel here in verses 12 and following. So let's pick it up in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 12. A worthless person... A wicked man is the one who walks with a perverse mouth, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers, who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil, who spreads strife. Therefore his calamity will come suddenly, and instantly he will be broken, and there will be no healing. Now, now Solomon has, has two reasons really for bringing this conversation up. The, the first is he's trying again, you know, we're, it's, it's the, it's the radar of, of teenage enemies, so he's again identifying another, another threat to his children, and that is, uh, meeting and becoming associated with this, this wicked man, this scoundrel, as he or she is introduced to us here. The other, the other reason though, in light of the, the narrative and how this is unfolding is, is Solomon is saying, you know what, son, you know what, daughter? You're not above becoming this person. And if you don't fear the Lord and learn to walk with him, the, the, the natural depravity of your very being, your very nature, will lead you down the wrong path. And, and you, can be, you can actually become this person here that we're trying to avoid. So, so let's just, let's just look at this together. Well, what does the word scoundrel mean? That word, that word, uh, wicked man. You see there, worthless person, wicked man in verse 12. Um, the, the text means a troublemaker. Um, and, and it's, it's funny, because we all, we all know what that is when we meet one, don't we? I mean, you know, you, maybe you remember someone from school, or, or someone you played football with, or, you know, somebody uh, you used to work with, and, and you understand that they're, they're just, and you understand, when, when the Proverbs calls them a worthless person, we're not, we're not saying they're any less of an image bearer. They're not saying that, that they uh, are not a, a creation of God with, with the dignity and, and, and worth that comes with being God's very creature. Uh, it, it's functional. It, it's saying they're destroying their life. And they're not useful in any sort of way in terms of the glory of God and, and the work of God that they called, like all people were called to accomplish. So, so they're useless, they're wicked, they're a troublemaker. And, and, and you know how this is. Remember these characters we get introduced to in Proverbs. There's the wise man, there's the foolish man. Those are the two that we remember. And then there's this one, we're gonna see him again in chapter 7, we already saw him in chapter 5, that this, this person that Solomon is talking to his kids about called the naive one. And this is not somebody whose whose heart is cold to the things of God and they're just stubbornly wicked. This is the person who just doesn't quite know better yet. Because they haven't grown and they haven't matured and they haven't had life experiences yet. And and Solomon knows that of all of his children, that's the most 
volatile. That, that's the one who can potentially get themselves into trouble because they don't even know it. They're, they're walking right into something. And so when we think about these worthless person, the wicked person, the troublemaker, it's the naive son or daughter that's more likely to come in contact with this person. And before you know it, all sorts of bad things are happening. So how do you identify this guy? How do you know who he is and, and how to avoid him? Well, well, notice with me the characteristic. First of all, he has a false mouth. Verse 12 is one who walks with a perverse mouth, a false mouth, a wicked mouth. Um, Jesus said that your mouth speaks out of that which fills your heart. Luke chapter 6. Which means... You come to know something of a person by listening to how they speak, right? Uh, in a sense, it doesn't matter what they're presenting to you in terms of their qualifications or, or what kind of person they are. You just kind of sit back and watch. And you see, how do they handle that? What do they say in that situation? What do they do when, when they're stressed? What do they do when they're anxious? What, what do they do when they're put in a situation that they're uncomfortable? What, what happens when plans change abruptly? And what comes out of their mouth, Jesus says, is an indication of what's really going on in the heart of the person. That, that really tells you what kind of person it is. And so it's not surprising that we see here, Solomon just told us in chapter 4, watch over your heart because from it flow the springs of life. And he says here, the man who has a perverse mouth, watch out. Because whatever comes out of the mouth is telling you about the person. So he has a false mouth. Notice this too. He has deceptive nonverbal communication. And this is something that teenagers really need to learn. Um, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers. Um, you say, well, what all is that? This is a person who has learned to use nonverbal communication for sinful means. That's what's going on here. This is the person who is not just saying perverse things, but I'll give you some examples. Innuendo. Tone of voice. Um, eye contact. Um, do you guys understand that, that we can break the law of God without ever opening our mouth? We can do it with the look on our face. We can do it with the look of our eyes. We can do it with the posture of our body or, or the, the action of our hands. It, it's not just the words, although that's important. It's that there, there is more to communication and there's more to relating to somebody than just our verbal words. And that's what Solomon is trying to help his kids see here is that this is a person, if you will not just listen to their words, but now watch their life. Watch how they handle situations. Are, are they flattering? Um, are they flirtatious? Um, are they um, deceptive in how they come across to people? Um, and and that, that's the sort of thing. He doesn't get real specific here, but, but his point is they are misrepresenting themselves or promoting wickedness in some way through the nonverbal communication that they're doing that. And, and, and again, our young people don't always have an awareness of that going on. So um, guess whose job it is to help them figure that out? 
You guessed it, it's mom and dad's job and grandparents' job to help them figure that out. So a false mouth, deceptive nonverbal communication, that, that deceit that comes in nonverbal ways. Notice this also, plan, he plans wickedness continually out of his perverse heart. Verse 14, who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil. Um, and that, that's way too nebulous. So, so, Talk to me, uh, jump, jump in here, talk to me about people that devise wickedness, young people that devise wickedness. What are some examples that we see of that today? Because we need, to, we need to get some specifics here. So what do you see? We've got uh, parents, grandparents represented in the room here. Many of you have children who are already adults. You walk through this. Some of us are in the throes of it. Some of you work at school. Some of you work with kids. You, you understand this. So, so what are you seeing... Um, Continually devising evil, the plans, the wicked plans that come out of the hearts of teenagers and college students today. What do you see? Okay, peer pressure. Okay, so so maybe maybe the plotting arises out of following the crowd. Okay, for acceptance or something like that. Yes. What's that? Places that we go. Okay. Lying, bullying. Bullying, okay, very good. Rebellion. Yeah. Um, now, now, notice, he's not just saying, you know, teenagers do bad things sometimes. We all know that. It, it, note, look back at 14 and, and get exactly what he's putting his finger on. Out of the perversity of their heart, out of the fallenness of their unregenerate heart, they devise evil. They plan things. So this is, this is rebellion, isn't it? It's... I am going to go do this even though I know my parents have told me not to and here's how I'm going to make that happen. It's I am going to keep this app hidden on my phone and here's how I'm going to do it because I know that I shouldn't be using this. I mean, that's that's the level of stuff we're talking about. So so give me some more ideas. I think even in dating, like trying to get with somebody else. Who sure. Okay, so a dating relationship is real prone to this sort of thing, isn't there? Yeah, sure, okay. Manipulation, manipulation there you go. How can I manipulate parents, friends uh, to get what I want, uh, to avoid um, something being exposed that I want to keep hidden? Sure, good. Okay, so, so yeah, Sally. Showing off to impress friends. Okay. Mm-hmm. Very good. So how do we help our young people with this? Mm-hmm. Hold them accountable when they when they're caught. Okay, so so the the, the training, the shepherding part of it. Um, I I think the hardest part about this is we got to be in our A game as parents, don't we? We got to be on top of this. We, we can't say, well, I've never understood a smartphone, so I just don't know how that all works. And you can't do that. You got to figure out how do I shepherd accordingly, if I'm going to give my child the freedom to have that device. And if you can't figure that out, they probably shouldn't have the freedom to have that device. Um, we, have, we have to be proactive and, and diligent and vigilant. And, and, of course, the warning here is not just our own children, but, but it's, and this is harder, you know, it, it, in a sense, it's easier to do that in your own home because your child is with you living there most of the time. But what about the friends? The danger here is really the friends that do this. And now you may see, you may see a friend, what, half an hour a week, a couple hours a week maybe, they come here, they come there, 
And so we as parents need to be doubly vigilant because a lot of times, and, and uh, we could probably all think about situations where this has been true, it, you know, our child has a depraved heart, which means they can be drawn to things that are ungodly, but the real threat was that peer that helped to draw them into it. So we have to have some sort of means to identify that and say, well, maybe that person is not a cur- good person to be hanging around. Mm-hmm. So creatively learning how to ask questions yes. without interrogating. Right. To see, tell me what's going on. Because Asking questions without interrogating. That's good. Something comes out that you have no idea that mm-hmm. they have been experiencing or dealing yeah. with. Yeah. And then you've got to watch your reaction. But right. you know, you've got to not just assume that everything's looking good. Because right. Because the outside looks good. Right. So we've got to ask questions about that. Yeah. It's a good reminder. I don't know if you guys heard that in the back. Brenda was just saying we, we can't just assume if the outside looks okay that the inside's doing okay, and we need to learn to ask questions without coming across like the interrogator to to draw out those issues, and then when they do come out, to have a a godly tempered response and not overreact. So I know none of us as parents ever overreact, but you know, yes. So those in the back, Nick was just saying that, um, you know, because he was a teenager once, um, we, we, we bring or we ought to bring a level, a level of empathy when we see our children struggling with some of the same things we struggle with, not, not to let them off the hook or, or I know you're not saying that, not, but, but actually to come alongside as, you know, one sinner in need of grace to another sinner in need of grace. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Right. Yes. We used to be able to communicate. Yes. But I think for teenagers, sometimes they're reluctant to really communicate and say how I'm feeling because, oh, well, they know it's bad. I know it's bad. They know it's bad. And I'm right. just getting big trouble. Right. So if we can yeah. somehow say, look, communicate with me, tell me what's going on, and I will not be judgmental. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's good. Communication. Yes. So you're, so you're just saying if you make communication a normal part of the home life, that ensures that that continues when they leave you. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Very good. We've we got a lot of wisdom in this room, don't we? Um, so thank you for sharing. I think those of us that are still in the middle of it appreciate uh, the perspective of that. So, Jack?
Yeah, so there's some environmental control that we want to impose there. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, thank you guys. Those are great ideas, and, and that's, that fleshes out what we just saw. And that's, the reason, part of the reason I want to do that is, wasn't that helpful just to hear from each other and get really specific? And, and that, that's how we need to read our Bibles, is when we come across it says, um, you know, with perversity in his heart, he continually devises evil. We just, okay, all right, well, shouldn't do that. But we got to go to the next step and say, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? What's that life like in my life? What does that look like in my kids' lives? And and that, the specificity of that is what helps us then to actually be able to apply the Word of God um, in that regard. So, okay, and notice also uh, 14 says he spreads strife. So he starts controversies uh, and strife. Um, a troublemaker. He does things to provoke a response, a negative response, to start fights, to start calamity, to start um, problems between people. And, and you know, the, the implication of the text is the person enjoys watching the degradation of the relationship because of what he or she did to kind of get the controversy started. And that's that's why it says it with perversity in his heart. That's pretty perverse. Okay, so what's going to happen? What's the destiny of the scoundrel? And again, here, here's the parent saying, here's the threat, here's the manifestations. And, and, and notice, uh, you know, as Solomon is presenting this, it's clearly negative. But rather than saying to his son, don't do that, although sometimes he does, this time he's going to say, what, what happens to this guy? Well, let's just talk about his destiny. If this is the way you choose to live, what's it look like? His disaster comes suddenly. How sobering is that? Therefore, his calamity will come suddenly. Um, what does that mean? I think sometimes that people that get caught up in this, their pride thinks that they're, they're pretty good, that they can't lose. And what God says is, that's not true. And God's judgment will catch up with them. And it will come harshly and it will come suddenly. I say harshly because look at the next verse. Instantly he will be broken and there will be no healing. I don't think Solomon intends to say that uh, here's this special class of person that, that can't cry out to God in repentance and faith and be forgiven. I don't think that's what he's saying. What, what he's saying is... Um, this sort of lifestyle is so deceitful and so dangerous that the end of life may come without ever taking advantage of that opportunity because you're so blind to the reality of your own need. Okay? So now, now watch, how, watch how the scoundrel, as we've learned a bit about him here, watch how this has introduced now the six things that the Lord hates. Look at the next verses. There are six things which the Lord hates, and then Solomon remembers another one. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Here we go. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife amongst brothers. Now, 
the, the topic that, that we kind of back into thinking about this is the fact that God hates. And the reason we need to maybe talk just a few minutes about that is that uh, we have so romanticized the God of the Bible in our American Christian culture that to talk about a God who hates almost seems completely out of line, doesn't it? He's a lot. He's a God of love. He's a God of grace. He's not a God of hatred. And yet, you got to know what Bible are you reading? Um, we and you guys understand. You may not think, well, I haven't I haven't crafted a Buddha and put him up in my bathroom, so I'm not an idolater. Any time we craft, even in our own mind, an image of God from our own imaginations that is inconsistent with the God of the Bible, we have made a false image. We are an idolater. So in American Christianity, when we've created a a passive, benign, loving, gracious, Mr. Rogers sort of God that's always just trying to be nice and, and cover for people, that's, that's called national idolatry in the American church is what that's called. So that's why I want to just take a few minutes. And, and you understand, God is a God of grace. He is a God of love. He is a God of mercy. And, and, and praise him for that because we would be without hope if he did not possess those attributes. But we also understand that this says there are some things that God hates. And our theology of who God is has to be consistent with the biblical view. Okay, so I'm, I'm borrowing here from uh, the, the Puritan Stephen Charnock. Um, let's let Charnock introduce us. And I put the page number there in your notes in case you wanted to look this up. Um, Charnock's works are available for free online, so it's page 250 in his works. You can go to Google Books and read this if you want to. Uh, just listen to this, okay? It's, it, it's a bit long, and it's way Puritan, okay? So I know it's uh, 1015, and some of you are still on your first cup of coffee, but stay with me, because this is, this is gold, okay? Listen to this. All unholiness is vile and opposite to the nature of God. It is such a loathsome thing that the purity of God's eye is averse from beholding. Habakkuk 1.8. It is not said there that he will not, but he cannot look on evil. That's the verse where it says God cannot look on evil, right? He cannot look on evil. There cannot be any um, uh, inconsistency between God and sin. The natures of both are so directly and unchangeably contrary to one another. So far, so good. Holiness, listen, holiness is the life of God. It endures as long as his life. And he must be eternally averse from sin. He can live no longer than he lives in the hatred and loathing of it. Now listen to this. If he should for one instant cease to hate it, meaning sin, he would cease to live. To be a holy God is as essential to him as to be a living God. And he would not be a living God, but a dead God, if he were in the least point of time 
an unholy God. He cannot look on sin without loathing it. He cannot look on sin, but as his heart riseth against it. He must needs be most odious to him as that which is against the glory of his nature and directly opposite to that which is the luster and the varnish of all his other perfections. It is the abominable thing which his soul hates, uh, Jeremiah says. The vilest terms are Im- uh, imaginable are used to signify it. And here's some examples. Do you understand the the loathsomeness of a miry swine or the nauseousness of the vomit of a dog? These are emblems of sin, 2 Peter chapter 2. Can you endure the steams of putrefied carcasses from an open sepulcher? Is the smell of the stinking sweat or excrements of a body delightful, as James talks about it in James chapter 1? Or is the sight of a body overgrown with scabs and leprosy grateful to you? So vile, so odious is the sin in the sight of God. Therefore, it is no light thing then to fly in the face of God, to break his eternal law, to dash both the tables in pieces, to trample the transcript of God's own nature under our feet, to cherish that which is inconsistent with his honor, to lift up our heels against the glory of his nature, to join issue with the devil in stabbing his heart and depriving him of his life. Sin in every part of it, is in opposition to the holiness of God and consequently an envying Him a being and life, of being in life as well as glory. So sin cannot escape a due punishment. A hatred of unrighteousness and consequently a will to punish it is as essential to God as a love of righteousness. And since he is not as a heathen idol, but hath eyes to see and purity to hate every iniquity, he will have an infinite justice to punish whatsoever is against his infinite holiness. As he loves everything that is amiable, so he loathes everything that is filthy, and that consequently without any change... His whole nature is set against it. And he abhors nothing but this. So what is God's hatred? Here's something you probably won't hear in a lot of places. God's hatred is a passionate response of his holy nature to strongly dislike despise and detest all things that are contrary to his righteous ways and character. And I love this. Um, if, if, if you're still, if, that, if that's hard for you to accept, if, if this is new theology, listen to Tozer, who has a way of just putting it, putting it so well. Tozer said this, God hates iniquity, as a mother hates the polio that take the life of her child. You see it? Some of you have lost children, and you can relate to that. Um, that that's a good perspective. And, and we see that this is, this is not an uncommon theme in the book of Proverbs. Just, just flip over to Proverbs chapter 8. 
verse 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. That's what it means to fear God, is to be like Him. Be holy as I am holy. And that means we hate evil. Pride and arrogance in the evil way, I hate. We read Psalm chapter 5 this morning. Uh, and, and you no doubt heard the echo in that psalm of some of the very things we've just read here in the book of Proverbs. It says that God hates all who do iniquity. He destroys those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Uh, Psalm 45, verse 7. Again, we're we're thinking about uh, the hatred of God as one of his attributes. It says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Um, Isaiah 1 and Amos 5, God, God says the same thing to his people that have turned away from his law and are going through the motions of religiosity, but whose heart are far, far from him. This is what God says in, in Isaiah 1. It's paralleled in Amos 5. I'll quote it for you. Ready? I hate your sacrifices. God says to his people. And you say, but God, you told him to do it. You, you told him to perform these sacrifices. God says, I hate it. Why does God hate it? Because the people honors him with their lips, but their heart is far from him. So you you get the idea. The hatred of God is a part of his nature. It is an expression of his holy character. It really is an expression of of his holiness, his otherness, if you will. And and this text says, if we go back to Proverbs chapter 6 now, Chapter 6, the six things that the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to him. By the way, that little word abomination, just so you got an idea of what it means, it means abhorrence. That's why I wanted to read Charnock, because Charnock captures the, the, the level of perversity that ought to come into our minds when we think about wickedness and sin and unholy things. It's an abhorrence to God. And uh, he, uh, Charnock quoted uh, the text that says, God can't even look on evil. I mean, is that, there there are some things, just just think about this for a minute. There are some things that when you see them or hear about them, you get that sick feeling in your heart and you go, oh, how can anyone do that? You know, you read something in the paper, you watch something on the news, and and, and you're just, you're, you're just disgusted because of the wickedness of, of the, the, the situation. And you've had experience like that, okay? That is God's reaction to the most minute detail of your life and my life that falls short of His glory. And He can't even look at that. It, it causes Him such a, a violent reaction in His being. He's so opposed to it, He can't even look at it. His eyes are too pure. And too holy, the scripture tells us. So now he's going to catalog these seven things. Now notice how these seven things come right out of the life of the scoundrel. So it's like, that's the narrative, and now he's going to draw the principles for his son here in these. What's the first thing that God hates? Prideful eyes, or we could think of it as a prideful gaze. It's a way, it's a way of going through life always looking down on other people and thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Um, pride is is when is when we as sinful human beings 
do not think of ourselves rightly in light of a holy and perfect God. We, we misevaluate ourselves. We think more highly than we are. We, we minimize our shortcomings. We maximize the shortcomings of others. And we walk around with a, it, it's like having a pair of glasses on that you look at all of life in that's always critical, always looking down and always elevating self. You say, why is this number one of the, of the seven things that God hates? Because this is where sin started. This is the fall of Satan, and this is the fall of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve would not have fallen into sin if they had not gone through the exercise of elevating themselves over God to make them his, to, to make themselves judges over him. Did God really say? Is God really good? Is he holding something back? And most of all, James tells us that um, God's opposed to the proud. So if you want to turn off the faucet of God's grace in your life, that's the way you do it. Just live in that. Number two, a lying tongue. Haughty eyes and a lying tongue. We, we notice here again that the theme uh, that we see elsewhere in the book of Proverbs also We see it in chapter 12, verse 22. Uh, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. He abhors it. You say, well, why, why is God so violently opposed to lying? Because Satan's very nature is that he's a liar. And God's very nature is that he always tells the truth. In fact, in fact, the Bible says not just that God always tells the truth, the Bible says he, in his character and nature and law, is what is truth. That, that's the measuring stand. That, that's how we know truth. We don't, we don't say, well, let's go take the measuring stick of truth and, and measure God and say, yep, it's true. It's he is the measuring stick. He, he is, in his very nature, what is true and what is right. And, and, and I'm, I'm showing a little bit of, of how this works here, but these, guys, these seven things are descriptions of things that the Bible specifically tells us that Satan does. And they are the very things that God in his nature never does. A lying tongue. Why is lying so destructive? Because you live out of what you believe to be true. Your whole life flows out of what you embrace in your heart as true. And if what you're embracing in your heart is lies and what you're communicating with your mouth is lies, you're not living in this world. You're living in some fantasy land world. And the longer you live in that world, the further away from God you move. Also, think about, think about how destructive lying is to relationships. Can you have a relationship with somebody you can't trust? You know, plumber comes out to the house. You don't know anything about plumbing. He says it's going to be 500 bucks to fix this thing. And you're going, okay. And you don't know any better. And he knows that you don't know any better. A plumber you can trust? Okay. You pay the bill. You know, it's a lot of money, but okay. But that, what do you got that little doubt in your mind? What if he's taking advantage of me? 
or your HVAC guy or the guy that fixes your car or your dentist or you know, whoever it is, right? What if it's your spouse? What if it's your kids? What if you're trying to help your mom or your dad and, you know, I'm, they're not giving me the whole story? I mean, you, you can't have a relationship with somebody if you can't trust them. And you don't trust them if there's not honest communication going on, right? You see see how destructive this is? And he says, young person, don't become that person. Number three, hands that kill the blameless or shed innocent blood. And we saw that again. Uh, this, this scoundrel goes around and he, he spreads strife. He devises evil. He brings bloodshed. And, and that, that can refer to killing. In a lesser way, it can refer to violence. Um, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you know, it's not just enough, you know, that you don't murder. If you're angry in your brother, in your heart, that makes you guilty before God. And we see here, um, I, I don't wanna, I don't wanna lessen this or spiritualize this certainly in any way, but hands that shed innocent blood, um, that can be, that can be as wrong as murder. It can be as garden variety and as basic as sinful anger. Taking advantage of blameless people, of innocent people, um, taking advantage either through violence or through some other means. Number four, a heart that plans wickedness. We, we just saw this, right? With perversity in his heart, verse 14, who continually devises evil. Well, now we come back to that in verse 18. A heart that devises wicked plans. Um, you, t- you talk about look, parenting preemptive strike. Let's talk about a parenting preemptive strike. When we see our children getting sophisticated at devising all those things we talked about collectively a moment ago, manipulation, deceit, rebellion, we, we, we do not want them to become good at those things. We don't want those to become habits. And, and what we have here is the fourth thing that God hates. It's a heart that's become trained in that, has become sophisticated in that. They're, they're good. I mean, we, we want, we, and, and you know this, um, our kids are smart. <laughs> they are smart. Um, teenagers, just plug your ears for a minute. Sometimes they're smarter than us. And, and Solomon's intervention is, you need to address this and begin the training before they become so good that you can't do anything about it. A heart that devises wicked plans. Number five, feet that are quick to do evil. Again, no, notice, notice the habit part of this. Um, Watch your children. Do do this. Watch your children. Watch your grandchildren. Watch your great grandchildren. Watch them in situations and say, when they're don't get their way, when they are put in an awkward situation, when they're scared. I mean, just 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 basic sort of emotional things, right? Where do they go? What is the automatic response? Do they run to you for help? Do they run to sinful anger? Do they immediately go into manipulation mode? Um, do they escape from the situation? They just, they just run away. They, they, want, they don't want to be a part of it. Um, 
do they break down? They just crumble right there, you know, and, and there's tears and tissues involved. And what, what is, you, you got to get to know your kids and say in those different situations, where's their favorite place to run? Where's their default response? And what this is saying is our children are prone to creating a habit to running to a sinful response. You know, it says feet that are, that are quick to do evil. It, it you think, well, that, that's someone who's a sophisticated bank robber and he does it six times a week. Okay, well, that, it could mean that. But I don't think that's the intent. This is a parenting book. And what it's saying is we need to learn where are those places that our children go in their sinful nature in the normal issues of life. And we want to try to put the brakes on that and help them to repent and replace it with a more godly response. Do you see that? We don't want them to get quick at going to that sinful response. That's the intent of what I think Solomon is trying to get at here. Number six, not just lying. We already saw a lying tongue. That was number two, right? Well, why is lying here again? This is specifically lying about others. This this is being a false witness. The language is very specific here. It's one thing to lie about yourself to get some other means. It's another thing to lie about other people. Now you're dealing with slander. Now you're dealing with gossip. Now you're dealing with misrepresenting other people. And and, and the implication of this, Exodus talks about this actually in those other Proverbs that you see there. The implication of number six is there's some advantage that you get by lying to other people. You know, think of, think of why, think of why the Bible, especially in the New Testament, is, is talking to ladies about not becoming malicious gossips. Why is that? Because some ladies revel in getting that information. Right? They, they, they enjoy being the person in the know, or they enjoy being the person to tell some little tidbit to some of their friends and but there's some there's something wickedly pleasurable in that and that's what leads to this sort of habit and that's the implication there's something there's something sinfully pleasurable in lying about others there's some advantage there and number 7 creating controversies and strife again we saw this with the uh the scoundrel a moment ago um Proverbs is going to uphold the wonder of brothers and sisters in Christ gathering together in unity. Harmony in the home, harmony in the workplace, harmony in friends, harmony in marriage. And and th- stay with me, hang on. Th- this, this person is going into those situations looking to create trouble between people, between relationships. This is the child that's trying to get his parents into a fight. This is, this is the coworker trying to start some sort of controversy because it's going to give them an advantage. Um, th- this is, this is a husband and wife, um, doing things. I, I, um, I, I do a lot of counseling and I, I see, I see couples sometimes doing things to make the problem worse to give them excuse to get out of the marriage. That's the sort of thing we're talking about here. Um, creating controversies and strife, creating disunity in the body, in the family, in the church, in the community. Okay, so there are six, six things that the Lord hates, actually seven that Solomon remembers here, and they epitomize the na- Look at this. This is Satan's nature. You, you want what, what the, the seven attributes of Satan? There you go. That's what these are. 
And, and, and conversely, these are seven things that God never does, the opposites of which describe his nature. And uh, so we warn our kids, we warn our grandkids, and we train them up to avoid these, these wicked practices that are so, so normal and natural in our fallenness. We're thankful for God's grace, aren't we? Let's pray. Father, would you give us grace to shepherd our children, our grandchildren, uh, according to these ways, and might we be dependent on you and alert and proactive uh, to see and detect and apply gospel grace when we see these areas developing. And uh, Lord, where, where they are already there, might we trust in your grace to bring transformation and repentance. Uh, Lord, help us too to be modeling the type of behavior and character that we desire for our children to have. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.